Hello and welcome back to the adventures of Lola Badiola. In the last episode, Park was convinced that there had been intruders in his apartment. But that was not going to stop him from going on a date with the girl with the almond eyes. In this episode, we are going to find out what happened on that date. So here we go. The Adventures of Lola Badiola, Chapter 37 The Final Date It was a 15-minute walk to the meeting point with the girl with the almond eyes, but Park was running late, so he hailed a taxi. A small but powerful man on a bicycle stopped, and Park jumped into the carriage at the back. He told the rider where to go, and flashed his identity badge from the Ministry of Information. He warned the rider that he had official government business, so speed was essential. The bicycle and carriage dodged through the mixed traffic on the roads of Pyongyang. There were horses and carts, big diesel buses and black limousines competing for the smoothest parts of the road. The rider pedalled as fast as he could, weaving in and out of the other vehicles and doing his best to avoid the potholes that scarred the road. During this brief but bumpy journey, Park had a moment to think back to what had happened during the day. He went through all the events that had taken place and all the conversations that he'd had. Slowly but surely, it dawned on him that he was being tricked. Why had Kang acted in such a sinister manner? Why were the two secret policemen sitting right in his line of sight on the bus? Why had the intruders in his apartment used up some of his aftershave? It was all too obvious. If Kang really suspected him, he would have been more subtle about it. If the secret police really wanted to follow him, they could have done it without being noticed. If an intruder really wanted to break into his apartment, he could have done it without leaving a trace. This was an intimidation tactic, a psychological trap. They wanted to make him feel like he was under suspicion, put him under pressure, force him to make a mistake that would then reveal the truth. He was being tested. On that short ride, Park realized that all was not lost. He just needed to be careful, strip away the fear and paranoia, and focus on his work. After all, if the authorities really believed he was an accomplice to Kim's crime, they would already have arrested him. The bicycle carriage arrived at its destination, and Park jumped out, feeling a whole lot better about the world. He thanked the driver for his incomparable speed. Then he headed swiftly towards the bench for his romantic rendezvous. The girl with the almond eyes was sitting alone, dutifully waiting for him. Her chaperone was pacing backwards and forwards in the distance. They both looked pleased to see him when he finally appeared. He sat down on the bench and apologised for being late. He explained that he had been delayed by his work, which was not very far from the truth. It was their seventh meeting together, and they had developed both mutual trust and respect. Their personalities complemented each other. He was serious and introverted, a D-level employee at the Ministry of Information, with a tendency to take himself too seriously. She was young and curious, with a good sense of humour and plenty of self-confidence. That evening she was particularly excited to see him again. "'I have some good news for you,' she said as she looked around to make sure the chaperone wasn't listening. "'You have won my family's approval.' "'Really?' replied Park. "'They are very impressed with your CV. 
the double bachelor's degree in maths and physics, the master's degree in computer science, and now the position at the Ministry of Information. Your career progress has been impressive. Park smiled. He was proud of his resume, but didn't want to appear that way. My qualifications are not who I am as a person, he said with false modesty. The girl looked at him flirtatiously. Do you know what this means? What? It means that the next time we meet each other, we will be completely alone. The significance of this news started to sink slowly into Park's brilliant but naive brain. Without the chaperone? The girl with the almond eyes nodded her head and looked at Park with strange intensity. You can show me your fridge. You can show me your television. You can show me your bed. She gently kissed Park's cheek. Then she pulled away and looked down at the floor. Every cell in Park's body came alive. It was as if his whole nervous system was wide awake for the first time in his life. He searched for inspiration. He wanted to arouse her in the way that she had just aroused him. But no ideas came to him. Eventually, three simple words popped out of his mouth. I love you. The girl looked up at him in shock. She put her hand over her mouth and started giggling. She couldn't control herself. She bent over double with laughter. Park joined in. His laugh was nervous. Her laugh was hysterical. Eventually, they calmed down and recovered their composure. I love you too, she replied. There was nothing quite as intoxicating as young love. It could move mountains, make rivers run backwards and bring the whole world to a stop. But it could also be dangerous. It could lead to foolishness, obsession, and in the case of Romeo and Juliet, tragedy. In this state of euphoria, Park temporarily lost control of his mental faculties. He forgot where he was, who he worked for, and how to behave in the People's Democratic Republic of Korea. He made exactly the mistake the authorities were waiting for. And the next words that came out of Park's mouth were the last he would ever say as a citizen of the fatherland. So, what is the last thing that Park says as a citizen of North Korea? Well, you can find out in the next episode. But right now, we have some learning points to discuss. Let's start off with some vocabulary. Listen to this phrase again. He thanked the driver for his incomparable speed. Then he headed swiftly towards the bench for his romantic rendezvous. Rendezvous. Well, this is a word of French origin that simply means a meeting place. Now, the English language is full of words of French origin. And this is mainly because of the Norman invasion of 1066, when the ferocious warrior William the Conqueror crossed the channel from France to England and ruthlessly and brutally subjugated the local population. So for the next 200 years, French was the language of the King of England and all of his nobility. English was the language of the peasants. And as a result, the French words that remain in the English language all have a certain 
sophistication to them. They tend to be intellectual words rather than common everyday words. So they appear in the world of art. We use the terms art nouveau, avant-garde, and we talk about different genres of art. They appear in the world of fashion. Something is chic or haute couture. You might describe a dress as having a beautiful silhouette. And they also appear in the world of business. Entrepreneur is a word of French origin, as is résumé and bureau, bureaucracy. Now, when a native English speaker uses these words, we make a considerable attempt to pronounce the words like the French do. We may not always succeed, but we try. Take the word croissant, for example. It is a typical French word that has entered the English vocabulary. Now, the sensible way of pronouncing this word, if you read it and try to pronounce it phonetically, would be croissant. But the native English speaker pronounces it croissant. So, for example, I would go into a cafe let's say in South Kensington, in London, which is full of French expats, I'll go into a cafe in South Kensington and I will say the following. Good morning. Can I have a cup of tea, a glass of orange juice and a croissant, please? You see, I will pronounce the word croissant like the French. But the key here is to not try too hard. It's important not to overdo it. I don't want to sound too French. I want to sound like an English person trying to sound French, if you know what I mean. Otherwise, it just ends up sounding pretentious. Now you, as a non-native English speaker, you should pronounce the French words in English like an English person, not like a French person, even if you're French. Is that clear? Okay, let's move on. You have won my family's approval. Really? replied Park. They are very impressed with your CV. What's the difference between a CV and a resume? Well, nowadays they're sort of used interchangeably and synonymously, but there is a technical difference between these two documents. So a CV, or a curriculum vitae, which is Latin for course of life, is an in-depth document, and it describes the whole course of your career in full detail. It can be two or three pages long, but it can be up to 10 pages long or longer if necessary. A curriculum vitae contains details about all of your educational achievements, your publications, your awards, your honours, along with your professional career. And it is most commonly used in academic job applications. 
In contrast, a résumé, which is French for to sum up, is a short, concise document that provides recruiters with a brief overview of the candidate's work history and educational achievements. So a good résumé should be targeted at a specific job and can be one or two pages long. So there is a difference between the two, although nowadays they're kind of used interchangeably. Just remember that it's CV or curriculum vitae. Don't shorten that to curriculum. And also remember the French accents on both of the E's in résumé. Otherwise, you are simply writing the word resume, which means, in English, to restart. Okay, let's continue. Park smiled. He was proud of his résumé, but didn't want to appear that way. My qualifications are not who I am as a person, he said with false modesty. False modesty. Let's discuss. What do you do when you receive praise from someone else, particularly in front of other people? For example, your boss congratulates you in front of your colleagues at work. How do you react? It's not easy, is it? You have a dilemma. You can smile and be pleased with yourself, which may appear arrogant and boastful. Or you can be genuinely modest, try to avoid the attention and downplay your achievements. I recently worked with a Norwegian technology company and they explained to me the concept of Janteloven. Janteloven, also known as the law of Jante, requires that Norwegians put society ahead of the individual. It demands that they do not boast about individual accomplishments. And it insists that they must not be jealous of others. It is a deeply ingrained philosophy. It's part of the Norwegian DNA. And it has some unfortunate consequences. It means that Norwegian people find it difficult to post about themselves on social media platforms such as LinkedIn. It means that it's difficult for Norwegian people to build their own personal brand or raise their personal profile. How can you promote yourself and your career if you follow the philosophy of Janteloven? There is a similar attitude amongst some Spanish people that I have coached in the past. One of my clients was a Spanish executive at a big American technology company. And she was doing a self-evaluation for a potential promotion. And she asked me to read through it. The English was perfect. But there was one major problem. 
It was really boring. My friend is an amazing woman, and she had done a really effective job at her technology company, but she was totally undervaluing her achievements in her self-evaluation report. So I said to her, you should be more positive about yourself. And she replied, no, 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 I can't do that. I don't want to be a cantabanianas. Now, the literal translation of cantabanianas is the morning singer. But metaphorically, figuratively, it basically means that you are a show-off, that you are a fantasist, or more crudely, you're a bullshitter. So a lot of Norwegian and Spanish people tend to be genuinely modest about their achievements because that is what society expects of them. And it therefore makes it very difficult for them to promote themselves and build their personal brand. Which brings us to the concept of false modesty. In theory, this is neither boasting nor being modest. It is where a person downplays their achievements, but does so in a visible way that seeks attention and praise. So, somebody who is exhibiting false modesty will say, Hmm, it wasn't a great presentation. I didn't really have enough time. To which you will reply, Oh no, it was a fantastic presentation, especially if you didn't have very much time to prepare it. A person exhibiting false modesty will say, I'm so stressed out about my recent promotion to director. To which you will say, You totally deserve that promotion. You can handle it. In each case, they are drawing attention to their achievements while appearing not to. And you see this all the time on LinkedIn. When someone starts a post with, So humble to receive this award, so honored to be promoted. If you're so humble, you wouldn't be writing about it on LinkedIn. So these are all examples of false modesty. And it's also known in modern language as the humble brag. And in my opinion, it is worse than outright boasting. It is worse than cantamanianas because it is manipulative. It insults the intelligence of your audience. So what's the conclusion here? How do you act when you've done something amazing and people are praising you? People are cheering for you. Well, I think the only thing that you can do is the following. I think you need to be honest. I think you need to be serious and clear about what you did. I think you need to thank people simply 
and sincerely for their support. And then I think you need to quickly and efficiently move on to the next thing. Let's do that now. Let's move on to the next thing. In this case, phrasal verbs. He went through all the events that had taken place and all the conversations that he'd had. Slowly but surely, it dawned on him that he was being tricked. To dawn on is a wonderful phrasal verb. It's almost an idiom. You know what the dawn is, right? It's the sun slowly breaking over the horizon, bringing light to the world at the start of the day. Well, if something dawns on you, it means you slowly begin to understand or realize something for the first time. For example, the solution finally dawned on him. Or, it dawned on me that I was lost. And in our story, it dawns on Park that he is being tricked. Okay, here's the next phrasal verb. Eventually, three simple words popped out of his mouth. I love you. If words pop out, you say them suddenly without thinking about them first. Like the cork of a champagne bottle pops out under pressure. Park didn't mean to say, I love you. It just popped out. Okay, here's the third and final phrasal verb. Park joined in. His laugh was nervous. Her laugh was hysterical. Eventually, they calmed down and recovered their composure. To calm down is to stop feeling upset, angry or excited. So, for example, he took a few deep breaths to calm himself down. And in our story, Park and the girl with the almond eyes were laughing nervously, but eventually calmed down. And on that note, we come to the end of today's session. If you'd like to improve your advanced level of English in a more formal situation, please join Marina and me for live and interactive classes. Just search Club Grattan on Google and you will find us. We hope that you can join us for the next podcast. Until then, keep bringing English into your life. And remember, don't be too modest about the great things you do.